welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today, we're glad to have Sensei with us today. Glad you're here, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we have Marla and and Craig, good to have you guys. We'll be talking about the 19th verse of the Tao Te Ching. Before we talk about the 19th verse, though, we'll make a couple of announcements. Craig, go ahead and tell us how the uh, Tao Facebook group is doing. Yeah, do you know it's, it's doing steady. If you want to, if you want to get involved in the meetings, then there's the link posted. To the page if you have something to comment or contribute to past meetings as well if you've got questions or comments you can post it in the group and we'll pick it up and then we can discuss it we can get senses and views on different things as well so it's a great resource for people trying to explore it and you don't have to be in recovery to to join it either which is a great thing we just we just a, a great bunch of people that decided to get together and talk about the dow but the, um, the Facebook page does quite well. It's, you can actually join in and watch the videos as well. So you can you can check Amy's tattoos out. The unedited videos, right? The unedited video, yep. Unedited, in all yeah. its glory. We have our nightly 9 p.m. meeting and all the other things. All of that's in the uh, episode notes. All of Sensei's links also are in the episode notes. So you can find him. You can find his podcast, his book. and. Everything he's got going on. All right. Verse 19 of the Tao Te Ching. Marla, you going to read for us, ma'am? Sure. Verse 19, translated by Jai Fu Fang. Give up sainthood, renounce wisdom, and it will be a hundred times better for everyone. Give up kindness, renounce morality, and men will rediscover filial piety and love. Give up ingenuity, renounce profit, and bandits and thieves will disappear. These three are outward forms alone. They are not sufficient in themselves. It is more important to see the simplicity, to realize one's true nature, to cast off selfishness, and temper desire. Thank you, Marlis. Uh, this is Jonathan Starr's translation. Abandon holiness, discard cleverness, and people will benefit a hundredfold. Abandon the rules of kindness, discard righteous actions, and the people will return to their own natural affections. Abandon book learning, discard the rules of behavior, and people will have no worries. Abandon plots and schemes, discard profit-seeking, and the people will not become thieves. These lessons are mere elaborations. The essence of my teachings is this. Set with origins, well, excuse me. The essence of my teachings is this. See with original purity. Embrace with original simplicity. Reduce what you have. Decrease what you want. And then Stephen Mitchell's translation says, throw away holiness and wisdom and the people will be a hundred times happier. 
throw away morality and justice and people will do the right thing. Throw away industry and profit and there won't be any thieves. If these three aren't enough, just stay at the center of the circle and let all things take their course. Since they're really interested today, sir, to see through a Zen perspective, um, what, what you see here. Well, I think there's very little daylight between Taoism and Zen. It, what struck me was the sort of um, variation in those translations. And it's not really the fault of the translators. It's I've, I've been told the Chinese is just very ambiguous, that you have to read the characters in relation to each other to kind of figure out the same character in another context, as much as, as an English word, uh, will, can mean something very different because it's connected to the characters that are above and below it or something like that. But it's very ambiguous and you have to fill in tense, you know, whether it's past, present, future, or you have to fill in all kinds of what we would call, we would cover with English conjunctions and you know, all the connected tissue in the English language, these little words are just not there. And so they sort of implied. But um, I think this kind of would go to the precepts in Buddhism where you say, um, affirm life, do not kill. Uh, manifest truth, do not lie. Uh, be giving, do not steal. And so forth. So the first is an affirmative and the second is prohibitive. And that's a style of translating the precepts that uh, Dogen gave his students. Um, some places only use the prohibitive. They just say, do not steal, do not lie, and so forth. But the affirm life sort of puts a positive spin on it. And do not kill, for instance, um, is impossible. I mean, if you're a living, if you're a living being, you're killing. Your your body is killing other organisms all the time. Uh, through uh, when you inhale, uh, you know the various um, defensive mechanisms in your body start killing off bacteria and et cetera. And we eat, we eat. Like live, living things in order to survive. So the literal interpretation of these things is very limiting, limited, and limiting. So we don't we don't interpret the precepts as only literal, and we say we observe them by breaking them. So over t- over time we, and then we retake the precepts. So over time we begin to learn the depth of their meaning. How many ways can I lie? How many ways can you steal? How many ways? Can you kill, etc.? Um, so they're meant to be living things, living sort of guidelines that are reflective, like a mirror, and you keep you keep seeing your behavior in this. So do not, you know, uh, praise yourself at the expense of others. Do not discuss the faults of others. Those are the some of the last five. The first five are more like very basic. The last five are more kind of like for disciples who are dealing with social transactions. So the four spheres I sent you, he's calling these the three something. These are the three outward, what do they call them here? The Wayne Dyer refers, in Dyer's book, he refers to them as the uh, categories, uh, outward forms. 
And so um, you're kind of caught in that, the, 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 the spheres that I put out as uh, kind of nesting spheres. These are where the personal sphere is, say, when we're in meditation and we have isolated ourselves. We go off in the woods or we sit in the corner of the room. Um, even if you're in a Zen center with a lot of other people sitting there, you're still alone. You're kind of doing your thing yourself. It, it looks like everybody in the room is doing the same thing, but they're all doing something different. But that's sort of entering your personal sphere. And even the meditation posture with cross legs, it's like a tetrahedron. It looks like it would fit neatly into a sphere, you know. The sphere would go around your knees and your head and so forth. So then uh, the boundary of that sphere moving outward from you is like the, the Metta Sutta, which I think you are all familiar with, the Loving Kindness Sutra, where you start with embracing yourself as kind of forgiving yourself, your own transgressions, your own screw-ups and so forth that have been through your life. Then you reach out and embrace your most intimate friends, family, uh, children, parents, and the, the next ring out, the next circle out would be people you work with, uh, colleagues, etc., professional associates, etc., uh, who you're on good terms with, you know, fairly friendly. Uh, this all comes down to the idea of Sangha community as a harmonious group of people, not all of our not all of the groups that we fit in or are part of are, are harmonious at all times. And I think it's a very Taoist principle coming in harmony with the way. But as it applies to the social relationships where you're embracing other people, and finally, people you don't know, people you don't even like, people you may hate, you know, people who have harmed you, people. So the idea is this expansive embrace, all-inclusive, finally embraces all of life, all of existence, the universe. So it's kind of that same concept. So I put this together, and many teachers like Uchiyama Roshi is famous now because of Okamura publishing his works. He was the same age as my teacher. They were both born in 1912. But uh, Uchiyama Roshi never left Japan. Matsuoka came to America pretty early, 1939, 1940, before the war. And uh, Uchiyama would often speak of the self, you know, the personal self and the universal self. So he would kind of leap the gap from personal sphere all the way to universal. And this is kind of a Zen principle, kind of a Taoist principle, the wave and the ocean and all that were, were part of something much, much bigger that we can't even comprehend. So I thought as a designer, I tend to make diagrams and to try to understand things. And some of you have seen my... Uh, semantic modeling of the Buddhist teachings where you, you build sort of three-dimensional structures of the teaching, like the Eightfold Path is a cube, you know, eight points. The Four Noble Truths is a tetrahedron and so forth. And then you can talk about the connections between them. So it's kind of a mnemonic, a way of remembering these teachings. And it's also a, a way of analyzing them and seeing the interconnections between the teachings. So this one is a pretty brutally simple. There's the personal, there's the social, there's the natural, and then there's the universal. And I think that's related to this in the sense that he's, he's saying that if you, when you cross that boundary into the social and you let all of these dictates of the culture and society start to 
determine your personal self-definition, etc., self-identity, uh, these are the limitations of that approach, what he's pointing out here. So, uh, uh, there, yeah. I had a question for you, Sensei. So these three that shown, like you said, the first one would be your education in religious influences. And it looks like the second would be your justice and your actions toward others. Right. The the legal system. Yeah. And then your business, the third would be business industry, profit. Those those seem to be all substitutes for what is really real in this, correct? Uh, In, In a way, but you cannot... Like Matsuoka Roshi would say, the Zen person has no trouble following the sidewalks. It means you're kind of stuck in this social bubble that you've got. You know, you can escape and go into your personal bubble. But uh, where do you learn uh, all those personal views? You learn them from your peers and from your parents and from your, right? So you can't really entirely separate from that. And the the, the uh, bit about business that's like right livelihood. You know what's on the eightfold path. One of the one of the eight dimensions of practicing everyday life is right livelihood. How how to make a living in a a rational or just or compassionate way. You can have a little bit of influence on your social sphere. You know you can have some. Buddha had a lot of influence. Jesus Christ had a lot of influence, uh, even though they were very powerless. And then as a leader of government, Putin is having a great impact on his social sphere of, a we think, a negative kind. But when it turns around the other way and comes back, when this, the way the social sphere comes in and dominates your personal sphere, that's what drives a lot of us to addiction and drugs. And, you know, we can't, we can't manage, we can't control. And it's even our own families can be a huge burden to us, the people who are closest to us. So the arrows going into your personal sphere from those outer spheres are much stronger. And the impact you can have going out is much really asymmetrical by comparison. And how much positive impact can you have on the natural sphere? You know, it's becoming a huge problem. Uh, Hey, Sensei, I was looking at that last phrase there where Mitchell said, uh, if these, these three aren't enough, just stay at the center of the circle and let all things take their course. So that would be the personal. Yeah. Yeah. And you could, you could say that if you go inward, as we speak of in meditation, we say we're going inward, right. Then inside yourself, you rediscover these three other spheres. Mm -hmm. So as you go inward, you see how you are defining yourself in social terms. That's what they're talking about here. So there's a layer in, just inside, which is like coterminous with the social sphere, quote, outside. But you have taken this on. Like Baker Roshi said as a child, he said, we take on, we take vows as children because we're other directed. He said, somebody may say, you eat like a bird or you eat like a horse. And you believe it because you're other directed. So you might see yourself as eating like a bird. Then when you're, you grow up and you're actually eating like a horse, you still see yourself as eating like a bird. So it gets out of sync, you know, psychologically. It's not a true assessment of myself. 
So when you're going into the inner sphere, that first layer into the personal is still social. It's the way you have let the social influences, cultural memes and so forth of all of your family, friends and associates in, in the society affect your vision of yourself. That's what we see in politics now, this manipulation that's going on. But then when you go deeper, you find that you go from the social to the natural again. You find the biology of the body. If you are, uh, if you do have uh, addictive uh, practices and you're overeating and you're becoming obese, well, that's the natural realm, but it's expressed in your own personal being as as uh, imbalance of health. You know, your your body is not healthy. Your et cetera, et cetera. Then, if you go further in, further into the microcosmos. You find the genetic code, the DNA you inherited. You find, you know, a cosmic particle can can strike a cell in your body, and you it can uh, all kinds of chemical things can happen that trigger cancer. And so, on the cellular molecular level, down into the universal, on the microcosmic, not the macro, not the outer, but the micro, you have all of these things. You can have. Uh, and profound effect on you. So the four spheres are not just the personal is separate and isolated from the other three. They're also inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any, uh, any comments, guys? How can we relate this to recovery? These, these are uh, all of these teachings in, in Buddhism and Taoism, I think, are what we call models in design. You construct a model. That shows you, you know, you take the parts and put it together and try to put it in a geometry maybe and see this is how, these are the parts of this and how they relate to each other. So they're not the territory. They're the, they're the map. They're not the territory. And they don't explain the ultimate complexity of everything. It's intentionally simplifies so you can kind of get a better grasp on it. And it looks like how- here since they... Uh- when they say throw away holiness and wisdom and people will be a hundred times happier that they're maybe showing us some red flags when we have substitutes for what is real, you know, right. When we, right. Uh, when, when we're putting on the outward facade, right. Instead of so Buddh- uh, Buddhism insists on uh, no separation of the Dogen said something like by virtue of Zazen, Zen meditation, it is possible to transcend the difference between common and sacred. So if you have holiness, and this is a Taoist principle, I think one of the things Taoism says is uh, when beauty arises, ugly arises. You can't have the one without the other. And so if you say holy, then that implies that there's something not holy and so forth. So Buddhism and Taoism, I think, are on the same page here and saying that those are just opposite ends of a pole, you know, and the pendulum is always swinging back and forth. There is no such thing as holy versus unholy. It's a relativistic, you know, and just like hot and cold, uh, light and dark and so on. Yeah, we can't. How how it relates to recovery. I'm not an expert in recovery, you know, uh, but I would guess that if you could see the influences that are causing your cravings, and in Buddhism it's broadly stated as cravings as the source of our, basically the origin of our suffering, 
maybe you could see that that's not me. You know, that's this influence. If I could see clearly that there's something, yeah, you know, what's happening in Ukraine today should drive everybody to drink. You know what I mean? I mean, it's horrible. I mean, how do we not, how do we not just, everybody just shoot themselves in the head right now? You know, it's a disaster. I was thinking about the substitutes uh, with this because Marla, the translation you read talks about these three were the outward forms. Outer, yeah, outward forms. Yes, the outward forms. Uh, And they're not sufficient in themselves. It's important to see the simplicity. In other words, to look within is what Mitchell was talking about. Stay in the center of the circle. And so I think that these may be red flags for us that uh, if we think outward uh, religion and education is going to be our solution, then it's not there. Or morality as in uh, uh, outward uh, outward signs of that is not the answer. Yeah, but and I I don't think I think you could say it can't hurt as long as you have that inner strength and you have that inner sphere, you know, and you have. So what you're doing is you're integrating all of the social constructs of what we call justice and, uh, you know, uh, values. Uh, You're integrating those through a very personal method. Um, they can't really hurt you, but you, you just begin to see them as for what they are. They're like human, humanity's ignorance, and this is the best we can come up with as a justice system. Everybody knows there's no justice in human justice. That's why you have this idea of karma, you know, that somehow time and, and uh, change levels everything out eventually. But you're certainly not going to find it in hum, human human justice. Doesn't everything equal even out eventually? Doesn't everything balance out? That's kind of the theory. That's one of the theories. But, you know, it it may not be in the direction you would personally like. Well, by balance, I mean, there's both parts of it. But, you know, I understand, you know, in just reading history, things like, you know, people show up the same way. Wars happen the same way. There's right. a, it's a cycle, but then, you know, things will balance out. <laughs> right. Yeah. We hope so. And uh, you see the same cycles come around and around again. It's like, when will we ever learn? You know, it's like we've been through this so many times. But, but remember, young people haven't. You know, 20-somethings, I mean, they are in a different world. They don't have the same references I have. I'm 80. You know, I'm in my 80s. And I, I talk to young groups and the, the eyes are glazing over. They don't even understand the references I'm using. I'm just seeing all this flow of information coming through kids' kids' heads. Yep. Something some yep. body always references the matrix. It's like all these screens with numbers not going through, but yep. they're not really taking it in and understanding it and actually living the life. Um that's what I was thinking about when we were seeing yep. when we were reading these verses, you know discard all this stuff here and get rid of that and actually get outside and see the sun, breathe the air for a wee while and just actually yeah, start talking yeah. for a bit. 
So the big problem today, one of the big problems that comes up in science is uh, there's so much data that you don't know what it means. It's just data. And so the in design, the principle is to understand or find patterns in data. The first thing you have to do is make it visible. I mean, you could make it acoustical, you know, but it's... You know, it's harder for us to sort things. We sort things out visually more than any other sense. And so if you can make this inflow of data that's coming from all sources these days, if you can make it visible and start to see patterns, then you can say you're now translating it into information. That is information you can act on. But I'm afraid that's what's happening is uh, with the mobile media and so on is you're getting uh, a massive, massive, uh, flow of, of data, but there's no information in it. It's not patterned. It's it's a blur. It's a texture. And uh, the kids are trying to sort it out, you know. And in, in Buddhism, we, we have great confidence that they will be able to do that, but and meditation would help them. <laughs> you know, I was just, if, I'm glad you said that about the flow of information because I, work, I, I do a lot of work for different recovery groups online. Um, so I've got my notifications on the phone, and my phone is constantly pinging, it's vibrating, you've got these banner alerts and this, that, and it really is distracting. So what I've practiced this week, and it's been absolutely fantastic, I didn't realize how much this was actually ruling my life. I switched all the notifications off my phone, and it's been absolutely fantastic. And Amy's sitting in on it, because I know Amy doesn't do Facebook. I can't not do Facebook because of the work I do in the recovery communities. Yeah, but yeah. You know, I get, I wake up in the morning, I've got like 60 notifications on Facebook from different conversations going through. And I wake up and I used to sit in panic thinking that I need to wait, I need to get myself through all this before I get out of bed. For the past week, it's been absolutely phenomenal. Come downstairs. I always got to say, I sit, come down, do my prayers, my meditation, but I don't. I come down, grab my coffee, sit outside for a little while and just enjoy nature. And I think, do you know what? I'm not really missing this. And a lot of the stuff that is going through the groups is just regurgitating conversations and people talking yeah. about the stuff. And I'm not downplaying what we talk about, but, you know, you just think, to yourself, Do you know what? I'm actually finding some joy in just not getting engaged with it, particularly first thing in the morning. I always say to people, like, don't take your phone to bed, just leave it downstairs. But I'm probably the biggest hypocrite going because I take my phone to bed, I'm watching <laughs> it at night time. But I stay away from the news. I've learned very quickly to actually stay away from the news. I get everything I need off Facebook. Facebook is the only thing yeah. But yeah, it's, it's all this information coming through it and I can't process it. So then I very quickly come to understand and look, I'm not qualified enough to process it. I just switch it off and pick up a book and... So Buddhism teaches then at least suggests that we sit in meditation and we start reconstructing or reconsidering the very data that's flowing in through our senses. And, uh, you know, uh, if you can get clear in that sense, then when you go back into the social realm of all this chaos, theoretically and hopefully, you know, you can be clearer about what you're receiving because you can see through what somebody is saying a politician or whoever you can see through to the motive that's probably underlying that and typically it's fear uh, driven you know to power driven to control try to control and uh it all sums up 
in Buddhism at least, is a kind of ignorance, a kind of profound ignorance, that people are running around like chickens with their head off, responding, but not reacting, Mm -hmm. but not really responding in any, any real considered way. What we're doing right here, where we have this discussion, and Buddy hosts this every month, and you you go back to this ancient text, you know, and see what somebody had to say a long time ago. You know, what percentage of the population we do you think is engaging in something like this? You know, it's going to be a very tiny percentage. So the one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that the people we are watching, witnessing, and perhaps criticizing and finding fault with, do not have a practice. They may have a belief, they may have a religion, but they may not have a practice that is this comprehensive or integrated. So, you know, you can understand, it's like a tribe of monkeys, you know. Monkeys have more sense. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking too, Sensei, how maybe these three that it identifies, because the first group it identifies is education and religion, how sometimes we feel education and religion are the solution when they're not. And then we have to turn that light around. And like you were talking about with with meditation and go, go within and the same with the second group, uh, morality, charity is not the solution either. Success is not the solution either. It says these three aren't enough. The justice system, for instance, Buddhism would replace that with karma and say the universal ultimate justice is karma. That, at, you know, as we're saying, things do eventually work themselves out. There are bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people. Idi Amin dies surrounded by family and friends. He apparently was a monstrous person. But from the karmic perspective, Buddhism says it, it ain't over, you know. This is not the last act. And so it's it's not something that's within human ken or perception that we can see. And it's not exactly a belief either. It's just a sense that, at least in your own life, it's better for you to embrace things that you think are unjust. Uh, you don't want to be a doormat. You don't want to let people attack you or your family and so forth. It's not like that. It's more like um, embracing the um, consequences that come to you through your own behavior and through your lack of acts of omission as well as commission, things you should have done, didn't do, and so forth. So then if you back off, back up to the educational part, the first layer, the first outward form he talked about, Master Dogen called what we're doing in Zen and Taoism as uh, developing true intelligence. So uh, the educational system, what's it going to do? It's going to try to, they used to, in the Industrial Revolution, the design of the educational system was to produce good workers, right, to fill in the needs of industry and the economy. And it's still, in large part, is. And what was the third one? The third one was religion and so forth. So Buddhism comes at this, and Taoism too, I think, from this personal sphere of uh, you're not going to find it in church necessarily, you know, you're not going to find it in somebody else. You're not going to find it in the Bible. You're not going to find it in the teachings of Buddhism or Taoism. Whatever is your true religion, you're going to find, 
yourself. You're going to find within, right? Yeah. Uh, well, you could say within, but from a Buddhist perspective, we say there is no inner, no outer. That's that's another duality that we set up, and we know what it means, but it's not absolute. Amy, I was thinking about uh, page 62 in the big book that says, so our troubles we think are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. The alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot. Though he, though he usually doesn't think so, above everything, we are alcoholics must be rid of selfishness. We must or it kills us. That selfishness kills us. And we always look for substitutes for surrender, really, substitutes for letting go. Yeah. A Buddhist view on that is a little more balanced in the sense of uh, people thank me for what I do for Buddhism. And so gratitude. A lot of people practice meditation have a kind of epiphany or emotional reaction at some point that just feel so grateful to, to have found this and to be able to do this. And then they transfer it and project it onto you, you know, and they say, thank you so much for, you know, and I, I say, well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> it's it's uh, socially not proper and nice to thank somebody, but then Buddhism really isn't because I do this for selfish reasons, just as much as for selfless reasons. And so uh, it, it isn't even that it's it's not selfish, but it's not also not selfless. The old poem, one of the old poems says, uh, when a doubt arises, just say not to. In this not to, there's neither self nor other than self. So we say not to is kind of a way of expressing the comprehensive non-duality of it. So it's nice and polite to thank people, but in a way... It's inappropriate for doing, you know, for doing what they do, and and that's another social thing. They they're the heroes. They're the they're the frontline people, the workers that get all the kudos and credits, and that's absolutely appropriate. Uh, but if you talk to each of them individually, you'll see that they have, you know, lesser angels and greater angels, just like everybody else. They're not really heroic in the sense that so all of these ideas are very dualistic and our our uh, language is dualistic in itself it's difficult yep. to find the words to yep. to form that yeah well there's a current expression that i find very useful and say uh, both things can be true at once people are saying that a lot now on commentaries and so forth and I think that's one way to think of it. It can, You can both be compassionate and your actions can look cruel at the same time because this person needs tough love. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. But you're the only one who knows that for sure. It's You can't tell from the outside. Hmm. And addiction in, in Buddhism is alcohol is probably one of the least damaging or harmful of addictions when you consider pride and power and status and wealth and, you know, and those things are all considered so positive, but look at the damage they wreak. Yeah. But physically, since they, uh, most of them were not killing me as quickly as alcohol was <laughs> right. killing me. Right. Hey, killing me and not softly with his words. No, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, 
Any other comments for Sensei, guys? Staying at the center and letting all things take their course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have I have my uh, my big book out. Of course, I do, and I have so much. I was trying to keep up and thinking of references. Um, the first one I thought of was page forty-eight. It says, "Outward appearances are not inward reality at all." That was kind of one of the things that you were talking about. I'm sorry, our what is not reality? Outward uh, appearances oh, out, are not yeah. inward reality at all. Right, like right. what I present to you on the outside is is a lot of the times completely opposite than what I'm feeling on the inside. Right. Um, and then um, uh, no amount of intellect matters. You know, that self-knowledge um, on page 40, it says he was positive that this humiliating experience plus the knowledge he had acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. I mean, that was so much of, of, of me. If I could just learn why, you know, learn the science behind it, then I can control it. But then that comes back to the control thing. Um, yep. Yep. Catch 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. I mean, our, our, our literature in AA is just riddled through with this, with this concept. And then, you know, the desire for more, um, right. more wisdom, more morality, more profit, um, you know, that that drive for more of everything, more alcohol, more drugs, more feel good, more, you know, and it wasn't until I couldn't sustain that I need more, I want more that I was able to then get rid of all that stuff. As I put in the chat, you know, take what you need and leave the rest. None of that stuff served me anymore. Um, so tell California, right? Yes. Everything all the time. Yes. Yes. I really liked um, McDonald's translation at the end. Embrace simplicity, put others first, desire little. Yeah, those commandments are, are interesting. Uh, my first reaction to them is, well, good luck with that, you know, uh, unless you find what you need and want that replaces the craving for alcohol or whatever it happens to be, um, you know, you're just, uh, I think you have to do this. And, and these great teachers from, uh, from the big book and from Taoism and Buddhism and so forth, they're they're doing their best to put into words what they have learned in the school of hard knocks, you know, what they have learned the hard way. So they're trying to help us, like helping little children across the street by holding your hand, you know. And it's it's wonderful and kind and compassionate, but you have I think we have to say, I really appreciate your efforts. But I know it's not that simple, you know. So the Buddhist take is something like we are craving something. Uh, and we should honestly own up to that. There is something missing. And um, since my teacher once said, uh, people go through life with something missing. They don't know what it is, but they know it's missing for sure. And they come to Zen to find it. 
and uh, he would call it spiritual confidence, confidence in everyday life. Uh, in Buddhism, craving, you know, you have Four Noble Truths, the existence of suffering, or dukkha, dukkha. I'd rather call it dukkha because suffering is kind of a poor translation. Dukkha means something like everything is changing. Uh, we want some things to stay the same. We want some things to change that are seem to be intractable and will not change or stubborn. But the point is we're caught up in this inevitable change and we don't like it. And so we call it suffering. It causes us pain and suffering and agony, and et cetera, et cetera. Existential angst, even on the highest level is still this kind of suffering. But Buddhism takes the position that this, it really comes from our ignorance of the true condition of our of things. And that the way we penetrate to that true condition is through meditation. So you sit on the cushion, and as, as Buddy says, you surrender. You give up. We call it die on the cushion. That's one of the expressions we use. So if you, if you recognize craving, it's not necessarily craving for alcohol or drugs. It's just kind of a big hole. You know, it's just craving, period. We want something more. We want something bigger. As, as you were saying, we want to be happy. You know, we want to be able to live in the face of this insanity and still not go insane. And so that's a fundamental craving. And Buddhism says that it's a craving for existence itself. That's why we're here. But we take responsibility for being here because if I didn't crave this, I wouldn't be here. And then I find out it's not so hot, you know, it's got a lot of stuff I don't like about it, aging, sickness, death, you know. <laughs> but it, so if we crave to, craving has two sides, it's aversion and attachment. We crave those things which are pleasurable, comforting, and so forth. And uh, drugs and alcohol work. You know, for a while you feel great, you're, you're good, you know. The next day the hangover tells you you overdid it and so on. They work until they don't. They work until they don't. And uh, so Buddhism says, you know, if you can accept this and sort of suck your guts up and, you know, take and hold your craving, and live with it, then maybe you'll get, you know, past craving itself. And uh, then anything is gravy. Anything. Is great, you know. They speak of greed in the the meal chant. We chant. Uh, we re, we re, uh, we reflect on the efforts that brought us this food. Sometimes fifty two efforts. Why fifty two? I don't know. Uh, that brought us this food, and consider how it comes to us. We reflect on our virtue and practice, and whether we are worthy of this offering. We regard greed as the uh, something to of life. And we regard this meal as medicine to sustain our life for the sake of enlightenment. We now receive this food. So they speak of greed. We regard greed as, uh, I'm losing the phrase, but greed in this case is you have greed for too much rice. You know, you, you want to take too much rice. And if we look at greed on the Gordon Gecko level, you know, it just makes it look so naive and kind of ridiculous to, to associate greed with taking too big a portion of rice at your meal. 
we regard greed as the obstacle to freedom of mind. So greed is greed is part of craving. But if, if, you know, do you like hot, spicy food? Do you not? Do you like really rich food? Do you like sauces, and you know what I mean? Or can you sit down with a bowl of steamed rice and enjoy that 100% fully? You know, and that's that's enough. You know, orioki is the the Chinese Japanese term for the style. They eat like mama bear, papa bear, baby bear bowls, nesting bowls, you know, little bowls and portions. Orioki means just enough. <laughs> Amy, did you have something? Well, I, I just love that Marla and I were both like, yes, I can enjoy a bowl of steamed yeah. rice. And Craig is like, no way. But I had to come to the even that place in my life, right? Where, right. okay. Do I really need more on this rice or is the rice right. enough? Right. Right. And that, that for me wasn't until like the last year and a half or so when I realized, you know, something, I, I'm, this may be out in left field, but I was just thinking about how our disease, addiction and alcoholism is threefold, physical, mental, and spiritual. And, and I don't know where I'm going with this, but I was thinking about the three parts of this that we were reading is there could there be some sort of connection with the wisdom morality and profit to the spiritual mental and physical i don't know i don't know it just of course course. and the society prompts you to dislike the car you drive and you deserve a new car right and so the whole economic system is designed to create ever more craving when it just doesn't make any sense but you go out and compulsively buy the new car you know and get rid of the old car my neighbors are making fun of me i still have a 1998 durango sitting out here <laughs> i call it the beast <laughs> try to keep it on the road sensei i appreciate you being with us today any anyone else guys with anything to add any comments? I would, I would just suggest you try to integrate a form of meditation into your Taoist practice. I'm pretty sure the Taoists were all meditators. Meditation was a game changer for me since when I started meditating several years ago. It, uh, yeah, uh, and it's still where I where I see the most benefit of anything in, in the spiritual yep. practices I do is the time that I sit. I'm sure it saved my life over and over. Matsuoka Roshi used to say, Zazen is what it's called in Japanese. Za means sit, like a Zafu or Zabutan or Futan is couch, cushion. Za and Zen, of course, contemplation or meditation or, you know, Zen meditation. So Zazen makes, keeps the men younger and the women more beautiful. <laughs> we will close with that then, guys. Thank you all very much. And thank you, Sensei. Everybody take good care of yourself. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.